0: Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. So I'm still on a Mexican beach with little access to any phone or laptop and this episode was pre-recorded in December. So if I have new supporters on Patreon, thank you very much for your support. I will name check you when I'm back live next week. So how is 2018 so far? Did you stay up to seeing the new year? So far, is it shaping up well or have you written it off already as a dud and you're waiting for 2019? Last year, when I arrived back in my office for the new year, I'd managed to forget on my passwords so I could access nothing. But as I waited for IT, I still had that niggling concern that I may actually have been fired over the holidays and know nothing about it. Well, you can't completely be sure, can you? In today's episode, we cover a story that was widely reported in the UK when it happened in August 2008. But I'm going to cover it today as I never heard the full explanation behind the shocking events in Shropshire which left three people dead. I think it's a fascinating tale on many levels, but for me, it's that theme we see a lot in the podcast which is of particular interest. This is that however perfect someone's life seems on the outside... And via social media, some of your friends and mine seem to live the perfect lives in every single way, don't they? Of course, we know full well this is only the impression they choose to give to the outside world. The reality is always very, very different. I hope you enjoy hearing this story today and come and join us at our Facebook group to discuss your thoughts on what you have heard. You'll be very welcome. But before we begin, let's put the story into context by looking at the music we were listening to at the time. The UK number one was Katy Perry with I Kissed a Girl, keeping The Man Who Can't Be Moved by the script off the top spot. In the US, number one was Disturbia by Rihanna. And the Australian album charts were, well, a bit of a contrast at this time. Sandwiched between the soundtrack from Mamma Mia and Miley Cyrus, at number one were those romantic crooners Slipknot, with an album of ballads which brought me to tears on many occasions, the wonderfully positively titled All Hope is Gone. In the news, a company called Airbnb was founded, and the incomparable Usain Bolt set a new 100m world record of 9.69 seconds at the Beijing 2008 Summer Olympics. In fact, that whole amazing Olympics became the most watched event on TV ever, with nearly 5 million viewers, which is, what, 70% of the world's population? Also this month, Spanair flight 5022 from Madrid to Gran Canaria skidded off the runway and crashed at the airport. In total, 154 people were killed in the crash, with only 18 people surviving. In August 2008, 50-year-old Chris Foster appeared to live a charmed life a multimillionaire and successful businessman who lived in a sprawling farmhouse, Osbaston House, in Maysbrook, Shropshire, on the English-Welsh border. He lived with his 49-year-old wife, Jill, and 15-year-old horse-mad daughter, Kirsty. He and his wife had plenty of friends, they were well-known in the local community, and life was good. Chris could never settle and hated doing nothing. Not something that I could ever say about me. When he was at home, Despite having a housekeeper, he was always cleaning or fixing something in his three-storey mansion or on his 16 acres of land. The family owned four much-loved dogs, five horses and Jill even kept doves. His barns in the grounds were cleaner than most houses and the riding paddocks where he kept the ponies along with the lake within the grounds were all pristine. This didn't come cheaply and Chris had spent well over £50,000 landscaping the grounds of his property. Inside the house was impressive to any visitor and this was thought to have cost upwards of a quarter of a million pounds to furnish including many antiques. Friends enjoyed visiting the house with many saying that there was something about going to the place that was just genuinely nice. You know how it is in some places, some houses you go to you just feel welcome straight away, don't you? Whereas others, less so. Well, maybe that's just me of course. But there was a genuine warm welcome from both of them, but especially Jill. She was so popular. She was bubbly, always smiling and always interested in your life. And although always dressed well, she didn't flaunt her wealth with flashy clothes and designer labels. Kirsty was very quiet but polite and Chris would always welcome visitors with a big handshake. No, it's not a euphemism. According to his friends, It was. (laughs) I'm laughing my jokes. According to his friends, it was clear that Chris Foster adored his family in a very ordinary way. The three did a lot together, and Chris was forever seen laughing and joking and cuddling them while watching TV or out at events. But when Jill and Chris had met and married twenty-one years before, this wasn't the life she signed up to. Chris's dad had sold mattresses door to door in Blackpool, which was a tough gig. And Chris's first job after school was an apprentice electrician. But he'd always coveted a big house and a grand lifestyle. And it was a classic Eureka moment that meant that Chris and Jill were able to upgrade from their first home, a pretty standard suburban new build in Wolverhampton, to their beautiful country house in Shropshire. The turning point was the Piper Alpha oil platform explosion which killed 167 men. Do you remember that event? Chris seized the moment seeing this as a tremendous opportunity. He saw the Piper Alpha platform in flames and this inspired him to invent and patent a new chemical formula for oil rig insulation. At the time he was selling pizza boxes as an alternative and cheap form of insulation when the inspiration struck him that would change his life. He was riveted by the television pictures of the oil disaster which lasted many days. And this led him to invent a kind of insulation that could protect the valves from being destroyed in the event of fire. Understandably, his future customers, the big oil companies, wanted proof that his invention worked. But to do the testing, Chris knew this was going to cost a lot of money. So Chris took a huge risk and he mortgaged his house for £5,000 worth of gas to fuel a demonstration. His mum Enid recalls the day, he was standing there with his fingers crossed while the test fire was blazing. He knew that when the fire died down, if the material had protected the valves, that was it. And hurrah for him, it worked. Almost immediately, this made Chris a lot of money. His mum continued, after that, he was making money hand over fist. He would so much that he didn't know what to do with it. Foster named his invention Ulvershield. Whereas other oil rig insulations burst into flames, Overshield just formed a safe, crisp shell and the big oil companies rocked by the Pauper Alpha disaster were keen to buy the product and Chris started to make a lot of money. Now, personally, I remember how making the first £20 million pounds changed my lifestyle and it was the same for Chris. He started to dress well, the family went on lovely holidays and then there were the cars. Chris had always loved cars and he bought a fleet of them for him and Jill. Two Porsches, an Aston Martin, a Ferrari, a Bentley, a 4x4 for his wife with the licence plate Jill 40 and a tractor for the mansion as Baston House. Even the house purchase summed up how Chris lived his life then and used his money quickly. His wife Jill had been shopping in Sainsbury's on a Thursday and she picked up the Shropshire Life magazine In it, there was a house she fell in love with. Not hanging around, they visited the next morning to view the property and Chris put in an offer that very same day. They bought it for £1 million in cash. But money brings other effects to relationships as well. Along with the mansion and the cars, there were the affairs. Foster had at least eight mistresses, according to Jill's sister. He would a big thing about blondes, she later told the Sunday People newspaper. Jill knew all about his affairs. There were lots of women on the scene. But she played the dutiful wife and she kept quiet. He wasn't a good-looking guy, but his money did the talking. He was always flashing the cash. It seemed to give him confidence. Chris started mixing in higher social circles. As one friend put it, to come second place wasn't Chris's style. He had to be up there with the winners. Guns and shooting were central to his life as a country gent. He joined the local gun club and he'd shoot up to four days a week. 300, 400, 500 birds, said a fellow member. He loved shooting. At up to £4,000 a day, it wasn't a cheap hobby. He ordered custom-made shotguns from Purdy and Beretta that cost £70,000 and £35,000. One year, he spent upwards of £80,000 just on shooting. They were killing machines, but beautifully crafted, said a friend. Chris always said they were an investment, that if anything happened to him, they were Jill's insurance policy. Chris kept guns all over the house, and his targets included Jill's doves when they got into the garage and left droppings on his cars. He also, incredibly, shot Kirsty's pet Labrador when it worried sheep, and the angry farmer threatened to shoot it himself. As you know, I love animals, and thanks to my wife, we have a, a large number of them. But how could you shoot your own dog? I just don't get it. Kirsty was of course very upset and his friends were shocked that he hadn't given the dog away or at least let a vet put it down humanely. But they described him as like Jekyll and Hyde. He was very charming, attentive and attractive but he could also be headstrong and impulsive. And when in one of his moods Jill would steer well clear of him. On Monday, August the 25th, 2008 John, Jill and Kirsty attended a clay pigeon shoot followed by a barbecue at a neighbour's house a mile up the road. Chris had drunk heavily but he'd been in a great mood all day, it was just his sort of day and the family left together to go home at about 8.30pm. When they got back from the barbecue, 15-year-old Kirsty went up to her bedroom where she exchanged innocent internet and text messages with a 16-year-old friend. For three hours, Kirstie chatted happily about typical teenage issues, boyfriends, school friends and what was on TV. The pair chatted about Kirstie's recent breakup for her boyfriend and an argument for girl at school before Kirstie abruptly went offline. The friend said, At 11.33pm, Kirstie sent a text explaining, Sorry, Dad turned off the internet. Kiss, kiss, kiss. The friends continued their text messaging conversation, with Kirsty saying that she was watching the comedy family guy on tv and could not get back online because her dad was too close and wanted her to go to bed at 12:14 a.m. Kirsty sent a text to her friend which read i'm off to sleep now night night love you the friend replied night night love you kirsty this was the last time anybody spoke to kirsty It was approaching 5am on the Tuesday morning when a neighbour of the Fosters heard an explosion in the distance and rang emergency services. Firefighters and then police rushed to the property and found it ablaze. Whoever had started the fire had first done everything that he, she or they could do to hinder speedy access. A horse box with its tyres deflated had been parked outside the estate's electronically controlled gates and lifting gear had to be brought in to remove it. The fire brigade then drove to the burning house and outbuildings, only to find that the front door had been boarded up from the inside and so had ground floor windows. They could also see that the house, stable block, and garage had been burning for some time. It seemed likely that the fire consuming the large, L shaped house had been started at several different points. Tragically, it was soon confirmed that this was no accident and that the three members of the Foster family had died in the fire. In the days that followed, the details of what happened at Osbaston House became clear. It emerged that the fire had been deliberately started by Chris Foster. He'd shot dead his wife, Jill, and also shot his 15-year-old daughter, Kirsty, shooting them both in the head. He then shot the family's horses and dogs, with CCTV showing him walking from the stables with a gun going about his task calmly before setting fire to his home using 200 gallons of oil. Finally, as the fire took hold, he climbed the stairs of his house to end his own life beside Jill on their bed. Such was the intensity of the blaze. It took police six days to find the three bodies. Chris's last moments were captured by the CCTV cameras he'd ironically set up to protect his own family. It shows him approaching the kennels and stable block at 3.10am with a rifle with a silencer and a lamp attached to illuminate the target. Having shot Jill and Kirsty, he shot the horses and set fire to the stables. He then put the dogs in their kennels and killed them too. He then dragged the carcasses to the stables. Dominic Black, the first forensics officer to enter the house, was deeply disturbed by what he saw. He said... He shot the dogs in the head. He shot the horses in the head, and he shot the wife in the head. There's no distinction, is there? It indicates that he classes them all the same. Police found Chris and Jill's bodies by accident while taking pictures. Black says, "I stepped on something spongy by the fireplace, which turned out to be their bodies. They were revealed to have fallen through the burned floor from above, whilst entwined, suggesting that Chris had set the fires." and then climbed the stairs to end up with Jill on the bed. The coroner recorded that Foster had died of a result of smoke inhalation, but a loaded rifle was recovered near his body. Whether or not he intended to turn the gun on himself is uncertain. The position of his body suggested to his mum Enid and some others that his motive was one of love, trying to protect Jill. But I don't think many others felt like that. Certainly Forensics Officer Dominic Black and Jill's sister, Anne Giddings, found the whole act evil. They especially mourned his decision to kill his daughter, Kirsty. I think that what Chris Foster did was the most despicable thing I've ever had to deal with, says Black. As a father, he'd been put on this planet to protect that girl. She was in her own home, in her own bedroom, with her own parents. The safest place in the world for anybody and he takes her life. That fills me with horror. When her remains were carried out, all the officers, experienced men and women, had to stop work to recover from the shock of what they had found. Kirsty's many friends were also in shock at what had happened, and now all they had to remember their beautiful friend was their photographs and their memories. One friend, 18-year-old Brooke, shared some of these with a local newspaper. There were pictures of a proud Kirsty displaying rosettes from a recent horse show, and another of Kirsty mucking about with friends on a geography field trip a couple of months before. Another is of her laughing with a friend on a history trip to Normandy at Easter, when the Year 10 pupils went to visit the graves of British soldiers. Brooke added, She was a very kind, friendly, sporty girl. She worked hard at everything she did, show jumping, netball and her schoolwork. She should have been returning to school the next Monday for the new school year, but instead... Her fellow pupils were placing flowers at the gates of her home. One message read, School will never be the same without you. Brooke added, They were one of the closest families I knew. Lots of people at our school are boarders and aren't home a lot, but Kirsty's mum picked her up every day after school. They spent practically all their free time together. They were more like best friends than mum and daughter. They spent most of their time together shopping and looking after the horses. Jill adored her and thought of her like a princess but Kirsty loved getting her hands dirty with the horses and running around outside. She would joke with her mum about boys, silly thing the horses had done and even Barbies. They always had little private jokes and giggled together at silly things nobody else got. Kirsty and her mum were obsessed by horses. Jill was really into them when she was younger and she loved that she could spend time with them again. Brooke added that Kirsty had a heart set on a career working with horses when she left school, she said. Kirstie was going to be a top horse trainer. She planned to do equestrian studies at college or university after school. She wanted to stay around Shropshire so she could work near her beloved mum. I can't believe that that will never happen for her now. So just why had Christopher Foster murdered his family? He had left no notes, but as police started to investigate recent events it was very clear that, as we said at the very beginning of the podcast, the image portrayed by Foster to the rest of the world was very different to the reality. When things were going well with his business, he was still living beyond his means. He was doing an extreme version of what a lot of people did back then and still do now, living on credit, believing the boom would never bust and that the money would keep coming in. His accountant said he never planned on what things would be like when he was 65 or 70, It was always, what can I do, what can I have right now? And then his business started to go wrong. In 2003, Foster contracted a supplier, DRC, to exclusively manufacture his product over Shield. But by 2005, his liabilities were 2.8 million higher than his assets due to his excessive spending. In desperation, Foster found and sourced a Californian supplier, who could manufacture Overshield cheaper. But DRC clearly wasn't happy, as it found itself lumbered with a warehouse full of Overshield it couldn't sell because it was patented to Foster. DRC sued Foster and won. At court, Foster received a real beating, when on February 28th 2008, Lord Justice Rimmer said that Foster was, I quote, bereft of the basic instincts of commercial morality. He was not to be trusted. Wow, that's a quote, isn't it? This was disaster for Foster. DRC took control of the Ulvershield patent. And under DRC's less flashy stewardship, the product has become a huge deal in the oil rig world, supplying to Exxon, BP, Shell and 39 other giants and making huge profits. Foster, meanwhile, suddenly found he had nothing to do but stay home and look after the horses and his estate. There were other financial dark clouds lurking for Foster due to his poor business practices, including issues with your friend and mine, the delightful HMRC. Ah, oh, how we love those guys. As his debts mounted, his business practices became even more questionable. Foster had always boasted that thanks to his brilliant accountant, he'd moved so much of his money offshore that he didn't have to pay taxes like ordinary people. But all that started to unwind in a spiral, of debt. His accountant actually shopped him to HMRC for unpaid taxes. One version is that the accountant fixed Foster's tax planning, but Foster refused to pay him for it. Another story is they fell out over a large property deal in Cyprus. But whatever the reason, this led an increasingly desperate Foster into shady business dealings that led to threats, accusations of blackmail and betrayal, and a level of paranoia that led him to keep a handgun in his car. This greatly worried one friend from Wolverhampton, who said, I didn't think, Christ, he's become a gangster, but there must have been some reason why he had a gun in his car. He must have made enemies that he thought would do a hit on him. As Foster's worries and fears grew, he installed high electric gates and told his cleaner to refuse entry to anyone who was not known to him. His brother, Andrew, alleges that police knew that Chris Foster had made threats to kill his accountant. He said that Chris had also made threats to kill other business associates, although it's not clear how much truth there is in these allegations from his brother. But what is for sure is that two men, including his accountant, did go to court for blackmailing Foster, but they were both found not guilty. By August 2008, events were running out of control for Foster, Earlier that month, his former partner texted him asking if he was okay. The reply was, I'm not good. He talked to his former associate about using a gun to shoot himself, but with a plea, can you please look after my wife and daughter? He told another friend that he would never let any liquidators take his home or possessions away from him, saying, I would top myself before that. They would have to carry me out in a box and he spoke to his GP on three different occasions about his suicidal thoughts. He was an antidepressant from March 2007, and on the Friday before he killed himself and his family, he went online and visited a suicide website. It turned out to be a spoof site, but Chris was deadly serious. Police are clear that the timings of the killings of the animals in his family and the setting of the fires reflected someone who was very much in control of their own actions. Someone who was calm, collected and rational. The final trigger for Foster's actions seems to have been a letter attached to the gates of the house a week earlier. The housekeeper found it on her arrival. it said to be opened only by Christopher Foster. She gave it to Chris as he left the grounds. He looked puzzled, put it on the seat of his car and drove off. It was from the bailiff's they were coming to repossess the house. But even on the day before he died, knowing the bailiffs were coming to seize the house the very next day, Foster kept up the pretense about being a successful businessman, telling guests at the barbecue that he was on the brink of pulling off an £11 million deal with a Russian company. His brother Andrew summed up the predicament that Foster was facing at the time of his death, saying, He owed £2 million, but he was actually solvent. There are a lot of people ruthlessly pressing his buttons, pursuing him for every penny. He can't talk to his wife, because he's afraid of her walking away. He's got the bailiffs coming. He's got the liquidator on his back. The bank on his back. HMRC, of course, on his back. He's sold the company. He's been to the GP. He's put on antidepressants. He's got nowhere to go. Chris was greedy. He bent the rules. He made some bad business decisions. He didn't like paying tax and now three people have lost their lives. Chris's brother Andrew believes that his brother's controlling personality was clear growing up. He said to one newspaper that growing up Chris showed him pornographic magazines with pictures of naked women. Then after a while he started to abuse him. This would happen at least once a week he said until I was sexually mature and told him I wouldn't do what he wanted anymore. This explains why Chris and I didn't see each other much as adults. I want people to know the truth. Some people think I was envious of Chris but I never have been. The abuse was about control and I had to break away from him. He always denied it but there was a pattern in Chris's life and it revolved around controlling other people. I'd see him occasionally but he was rude. At the millennium I wrote to him and said we need to talk about this as adults. He wrote back on bright yellow paper saying... You've got to beg and scrape on bended knee to come to me and Jill. I want a written apology. His brother Andrew continued I think Chris had a personality disorder. Chris was forceful, powerful, overbearing. He had tremendous drive and vision, but he took risks all the way, financially and in every area of his life. He grafted as a young man and he built up a good business, but he'd overborrowed and he wanted the trappings and he wanted them yesterday. Kirsty and her mum, Jill Foster, were buried together. Much to the disgust of Jill's family, Chris Foster's funeral took place later the same day, and he was buried next to his wife and daughter. So what do we make of what we've heard today? It is, of course, a terrible tragedy that Jill and Kirsty were murdered by Chris Foster, and we can only attempt to imagine the pain felt by their family and friends, for whom the loss just must be impossible to comprehend. Once more, I struggle to understand why one man is so utterly selfish to take the lives of those he professed to love. We keep seeing this happening, and each time it is just heartbreaking. Less than a month after Foster's crime, yet another father killed his family, this time in Southampton on the south coast. His name was David Cass. He smothered his two daughters and then phoned his estranged partner to tell her that the children had... Gone to sleep forever. He hung up and hanged himself. The couple were going through a messy breakup, but just why would you do that? In the US, according to the Department of Justice, a parent, usually a man, wipes out his family and then himself about once a week. No doubt you are thinking the same thing here as me. If you want to end your own life, that is your decision. But please, please give those you supposedly love the opportunity to make their own decisions. In the end, Chris Foster showed himself to be a weak, selfish and self-centred man. Not strong enough to accept his mistakes, he felt that he could not live with losing his money and the lifestyle this brought him. A poignant card was left on the gate of the family home after the deaths and although a simple message, it is one, I think, that is as true today as ever, simply saying, Money is the root of all evil. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. Please join our Facebook group where we talk about all aspects of UK true crime. And if you'd like to support the show in 2018, please do so at patreon.com where you can listen to 10 full-length bonus episodes with number 11 coming this week. Along, of course, with other exclusive content all for less than a dodgy pint of lager a month three pounds less than three pounds a month patreon.com slash UK true crime it's just left for me to wish you again a happy new year and I look forward to speaking with you next week until then cheerio okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry ooh a book club computer solitaire huh Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need.